Lord have mercy, ladies and gentlemen, season three of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Stephen Cock Esquire, is at hand. We got a bunch of great guests lined up once again. We'll be talking some guitar. I'm sure we'll talk about food. I'm sure we'll talk about hilarity. That's just what's going to happen. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. This week on Chewing the Gristle, we have jazz guitar potentate Bruce Foreman. I gotta tell you, I enjoy doing all of these interviews, but the Bruce Foreman one was so fun. He had such great stories. He's a magnificent musician. You've seen him and heard him all over the place. He's on Clint Eastwood movie soundtracks. His jazz guitar chops are ridiculous. This week on Chewing the Gristle, Bruce Foreman. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it's that time again for another episode of Chewing the Gristle. I have the mighty Bruce Foreman jazz guitar player extraordinaire. And uh, I first started, believe it or not, I first started seeing your stuff on Instagram and I knew you were buddies with Josh Smith and my mind would get scalded every morning as I saw you would play your first chorus of the day. And then I did a little digging and heard some of your other glorious activities. And uh, it's just so fun to get to know you virtually, Bruce. How the heck are you? Man, I'm feeling great. I, I would like to, I mean, I of course knew about you too, but I mean, your your Instagrams has, have been melting my face and my gristle, you know, and all my, uh, and the chalice with the palace is the pestle and the whole thing, you know I mean? <laughs> so I feel like we're old friends, but, you know, basically my, you know, you know how that is nowadays. I do. I do indeed. So where are you right now? Are you, are you in the Los Angeles area? No, I'm, I'm actually up in the Monterey Carmel area. That's what I thought. You're a you're a basement of a sort. Yes, 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 yes. Up in that neck of the woods, it's very beautiful up there. It's it's really extraordinarily beautiful. Um, just lucky to have a have a place here that I could kind of hide out in when the pandemic hit. I just kind of left this left L.A. and uh, never, you know, here I am. You gotta like that. You know, it's beautiful here. And, you know, I'm from San Francisco, so this is closer to San Francisco. So, you know, I I had the first, well, you know, I'd been up Highway 1 a couple times before, but we were with the band right before the pandemo hit. And uh, we did some gigs down in uh, Los Angeles, and then we were driving up towards the Bay Area, and we drove up. Uh, Highway One, and I, I, my son had never been on that trip before. So my son plays drums in the band, and it's a B three player and myself. And uh, boy, it is just so astoundingly beautiful. And then as we we're getting closer to Monterey, uh, I said, you know what? I wonder if we can just go in and go to the festival grounds and see where the Monterey Pop Festival was and where the Monterey Jazz Festival is and so on. And so I did a quick thing and I got my phone out and it said, well, you, you'll get there 20 minutes before it closes. I'm like, well, shit, we better hurry up. So we get there. And it was just getting to be around rush hour. So it was traffic was getting a little dicey as we were getting into town. And then I pull off the freeway and it's like one turn here, one turn there. I'm like, oh my God, we're here. 
we're this is where it, I just recognized all the you know the structures and whatnot from seeing the stuff in the movies. And we walked right in, and I was like, "Wait, there's no gator. We're just walking in." Yeah, it's, it's real loose around here. And, and then we go, and then we're like, "Well, there's the stage. I wonder if we can go on." So we went on the stage, and we opened the door, and we said, "And there's that burn mark." And I don't no, know if it's burn mark from Jimi Hendrix in '67 is still on that stage. Yeah, I had to take a picture of it. I just, I just, I just stood there in awe, just thinking, "This is where it happened." Yeah. So you've played there many times, correct? Uh, yeah, I played the Monterey Jazz Festival there, yeah, many, many times on that stage. Um, yeah, it's, you know, Monterey, I mean, we every, you know, even when I was in, like, grew up in Texas, and then when I moved to San Francisco, it was all, like, the Monterey Jazz Festival. I just kind of imagined it to be, you know, like, with just some huge thing, you know? Right. And, and then you get to here, and Monterey's just a small town, and... Well, it was then it was really mostly military, you know, because it's a big fort was a big fort right here. And, it, and you know, it's like uh, it's really just a loose kind of, you know, fishing village. And then the cowboys live in the hills behind it. You know, that's kind of and the agriculture, you know, they grow all this food here. So you, you, you have this whole idea of, whoa, that's this just like, you know, some huge Chicago kind of experience or something. And it's just totally. Just, you know, podunk kind of thing, you know, which makes it so wonderful to be here. It's not crowded. Everything's real relaxed. I'll tell you what, it's it's a, it's a beautiful area. And uh, my daughter is actually, um, she's up in Eureka right now. She's doing a uh, an eight-month uh, uh, course up there at a Del Arte school of, it's like physical dance and or physical acting and so on. It's actually clown school, if we're oh, honest. Cool. And uh, so she's up there, and um, you know, I told her, I go, Northern California is uh, like another planet. It's a glorious it really place. Is. It really is. But and the smells—I mean, just the, the vapors of you know, just being out in the in the fauna and the flauna. How about you, fauna? You wanna? I mean, you just well, go outside. You know, and, you, and, you know, a lot of that is CBD fauna or THC fauna too. You know, especially up there near Eureka. You know, yeah, that's true. That's true. We got we got some smokable fauna. You know? Yes, exactly, exactly. So, tell me a little bit about your how you got into the music year. Winter, what 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 gave you the bug? How early did it start? Were you down in Texas? Because you're from Massachusetts originally, am I right? I was born in Massachusetts, never really lived. I mean, three. I think it, I was two or three when we moved. Oh, okay, here. yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I lived in Dallas, and yeah, I'd, you know, I really, I know, I remember hearing Bob Wills and stuff like that when I was there. Uh, I played classical piano mostly. And then my friends started getting guitars when I was about 12 or 11, you know, and I just kind of would get them and they'd show me chords and I'd play it and we'd, you know, what was happening then. So I was, that would have been like, you know, 65 or six or seven. So it's like the beat, you know, the Beatles and Bob Dylan and, you know, and stuff like that. And Hendrix was just coming on the scene. And so I was kind of playing the guitar and I finally, uh, let my mom, mom talk my mom into letting me quit to play cl classical piano. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, I kind of just, but I really fell in love with the guitar and I was playing that. And then I'm, I'm kind of like Mr. Magoo, you know, basically and the way I look at my life, you know, uh, for those people who are too young to know this cartoon character, Mr. Magoo, he's one of those guys that goes through life's kind of oblivious to everything that's going on around him. And, um, and like I moved to San Francisco 
you know, in 1969 or 70. I mean, you know what's happening here. Right, you know, right, exactly. It was like the summer of love, the whole thing. You know, I mean, Grateful Dead, everybody was hanging out here. You know, Janis Joplin, Hendrix was hanging here. You know, the whole thing. It was like, and uh, I got, I heard this guy on a record named Charlie Parker. Right. And, and I just like couldn't believe there was music like that. And, and, and actually in San Francisco at that time, like one of my friends at high school, his father was a jazz musician and he was a good bass player. So we kind of hung and he kind of helped me get into the scene, you know, and we were playing, I was in like a school that would be called, it would have been called the school of the arts now, but it was just like a bunch of musicians were always hanging there and there been a lot of riots at the school. We had hall guards, but all the hall guards were professional musicians. Ah. So, so we would just jam all day in the music room, basically. And like all the kids from other schools would come and play with us. And it became kind of like almost a hiring hall. Like if you're playing there, like, so we say, are you working tomorrow night? No, come on. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but San Francisco had a decent jazz scene then. I mean, it was way eclipsed by the rock scene, of course. I mean, the whole yeah. world was aware of the rock scene. And it was happening, you know, like Winterland and Fillmore West and all that stuff. But there were still a lot of great jazz clubs. So there was, a, I just kind of, I mean, yeah, I would go to those concerts at Winterland. I mean, you know, I saw Traffic and Dylan in the band and... Never saw Hendrix. I wish I had. Saw The Who, you know, it, 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 countless rock concerts. I loved them, you know. And they they had better drugs, so it was better to go there. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and, you know, but I've just like, in terms of what I wanted to play was just so much this other thing, this kind of bebop school of jazz. Right. And uh, the guys were really inviting and welcoming. And I just kind of deeply immersed myself in that and was working a lot. And I just sort of ended up there. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it, I, I look back and I realize, like, how could that have happened? You know, I mean, it's almost an impossibility, but it did. And it's, yeah, it and it all, and it all worked out. I guess so. I'm still here. <laughs> You know, when I was when I was in eighth grade, I started taking guitar lessons and um, or ninth grade ish from this this fellow who I, I enjoyed it because he knew the, you know, the Hendrix stuff and you know the cream stuff and all this, all these things I had gravitated to. But I was also trying to get my mind around, you know, uh, playing in jazz. I was in the jazz ensemble and whatnot. And I was, I was hearing these different chords. Uh, when I would hear more jazz-oriented blues, and I'm like, well, what are these ninths and thirteenths and whatnot? And he's like, here's a great book. Get this book, and we'll work out of it. And it was uh, San Francisco uh, jazz guitar player Warren Noons. Warren, oh, you got that book. Yeah, Warren Noons Blues. I, and I devoured that book. Like every almost every chord voicing I ever got for playing over a blues was from that book. Uh -huh. So did you encounter him? Was he one of the people? Oh, I knew him. I knew Warren. Yeah, yeah. He was a real interesting guy, you know, a real headstrong guy, you know, his way or the highway kind of guy. Oh, no kidding. Great, great player. Uh, his students were like disciples. I never studied with him. But, um, yeah, yeah, Warren was there. He was there right at the time I was there, yeah. So when when you're, you know, one of the things I was, you know, I, I went to school and I, and I studied 
I mean, it was jazz guitar. But, you know, I, I, I didn't have the bug... I mean, I liked, uh, you know, Charlie Christian was kind of my gateway drug <laughs> because, yeah. you know, it made sense to me over in a blues format. I was hearing T-Bone Walker and I was, you know, and I was hearing these, you know, and B.B. King would do some, you know, more Django-ish, Charlie Christian-ish lines. And so when I heard Charlie Christian, that made sense to me. But when I heard like Wes and, and, and the more sophisticated George Benson stuff, it just, my mind just couldn't handle it. So, you know, that was kind of my way of getting into it. But, you know, I, I, I didn't have an affinity uh, for a lot of the standards originally. You know, that changed with time. But early on, it's like, I couldn't handle major seventh chords. <laughs> I, I just, I needed that dominant seventh sound in my life. I was just a young pirate. So I, I'm curious because one of the things I always, you know, and when I, when I talk to people now and they want to learn a, a jazz tune or, um, you know, know how to play over changes, I'm like, well, you have to know the songs. You have to memorize the tunes and you have to know them. And once you, you know, know the melody and know the chords, then you can start to improvise without, you know, go, oh, what change am I on now? Oh, I got to put this arpeggio in there. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, you listen to Charlie Parker and of course, all of his compositions are variations of the standards. Did you... Did you mostly start off with the Charlie Parker stuff and then go backwards and, and then get the originals and go from there? Or how did you prioritize, you know, the tunes that you learned in terms of assembling your, your um, you know, your book, if you will? Yeah, well, it started with Burr, with Charlie Parker. And then, um, and then yeah, I realized that, that he was playing the songs and, you know, it would be really helpful I guess I learned a couple of those songs that those things were based on. And, and I realized how much I began to understand what he was doing better. So I kind of, then I went backwards and, you know, I found out he listened to this guy named Lester Young and, you know, that's what inspired him. And so I, and then I learned those basic tunes, you know, and, but I was with, I was playing with guys who, who were really sticklers for that. I mean, you, you don't get to play with, you know, okay. Like, we didn't have those books that everybody's got now on the iPads and shit. That's right. So, I mean, it was like, you don't get to solo on the tune unless you know the song. Right. But, but it's okay if you play along, like if you're a guitar player, if you kind of like play the chords and just figure them out as you go, you know, that's okay. And, you know, and then you can listen. If Can you play the melody? Okay. Can you kind of get that? Okay. Then you can take a, you can take a ride now. You know what I mean? You just kind of, you kind of graduate into that space. And uh, the standards were just, yeah, a lot more simple for me in terms of being able to hear the harmony. Like when you hear those melodies from those older tunes that they were basing everything on, it was really obvious what the harmony was. You just hear that melody and you can hear the chord change. Right. You know what I mean? So for me, that was a real big aha moment. And like, oh, yeah, I got to learn this stuff first. I mean, Charlie Parker knew all those tunes. Right. You know, so to start with what he was doing is sort of like trying to enter a building on the third floor without a staircase, you know. <laughs> and um, and so you just kind of got to go back and learn the songs. And they're all really simple. I mean, they're all kind of the blues in a weird way. You know, I mean, there's nothing in there that you won't find in a basic blues. Right. You know, it goes to the four. It goes, you know, it does a turnaround. It goes to the relative minor. You know, I mean, it's kind of the shit that happens in blues anyway. So it's like... You know, except for they might modulate, but then they'll do those same moves in another key. So it's like it's not really stuff that's that's hard to get your head around once you 
you give yourself the opportunity to really hear where it's coming from. If you, if you're like they're pushing a bunch of buttons, and you're trying to hear it, that's when people get like frustrated, confused, you know, and, and it makes it difficult for them, you know. And I mean, I do a lot of teaching, and you know, and I, you know, but I, I'm I, I'm just a real stickler. Everybody will tell you it's like I hate when guys are reading charts. I hate when guys are reading charts on the on the band. I'm not a horrible reader. I can read, you know, for a guitar player, I'm pretty decent, but it's like my goal is to never have to look at a piece of paper and just use my eyes and make it happen. So, um, you know, I'm I'm a stickler for like, learn the songs. If you want to play a song, learn a song. And and I, and the thing I'll ask everybody who I'm playing with is, okay, you're a band leader and you got a guy in the band and he doesn't know the song. I said, do you really (laughs) want him taking a solo? Yeah, absolutely. I get it. Think about it. You know, so it's like, and they that kind of that would that usually gets through. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, that, that's right. You know, I, I relate to that. You know, I, I can dig it. Uh, you know, I mean, I, those books, man. I, I go to a gig, you know, and that's what most people think jazz is now. It's like, oh yeah, a bunch of people playing old songs, you know, staring at books. You know, I mean, that's what jazz is to them. You know, it's like. Not really, you know, it's not the music I grew up listening to or wanting to play. And I think that's just sort of what it's become in everybody's limited exposure. Well, to when did you mind. start like putting together your own, your own aggregations and doing your own thing? You know, from a very early time, I just really, you know, I heard new, I'm kind of a, a crazed person and, and I got a lot of energy. So it's like, I always had ideas for things, you know, I was either writing songs or coming up with weird on some weird yeah, yeah. aggravations. <laughs> and, uh, I put people together, you know, that, that seemed to me would be really something amazing would happen. Oftentimes like really opposites and just kind of like throwing humans in a blender and just, you know, seeing what would happen. Kind of the, Right. You know, the, the, the basomatic, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, you just kind of, I just always found that to be just the most fun, you know, and, and, and really the jazz ethos was, you know, okay, we, this is what we've got. This is how we do it. You know I mean? Like you see my first, my Instagram, it's called first course of the day. Well, I just basically come out to my shed, think of a song. I know I got to do it all in one minute. You know, I want people to know what song it is. I want to, I want to like improvise on it a little bit and I got to end it. You know, that's like, those are my rules. Right. And with the context of that, I just do it. But like, it's just the mic on the phone. So like some days, uh, the guitar's not turned up very loud. So it's mostly acoustic and you can hear me breathing and in making comments <laughs> about, Oh, that sounded like shit or something like that. Um, and some days the thing's certain, I mean, you know, I, but whatever I've got at that moment, cause I've just turned the thing on and I've started to play, that's what I'm going to deal with. You know, that's always to me, the excitement of music and jazz in particular is like, Hey, we're in this moment. I'm with, I'm you with know, you. We got to make music out of it. You know, you, you, you might not have your perfect tone. You might not, you know, your chops might be, not be a hundred percent, but damn it, you know, you, and you might miss that first, hurdle you know but you got exactly. 20 more exactly. so just keep well, going I, I agree <laughs> that's the fun thing for me about the instagram thing too is i 
you know, I turn the camera on and it's like whatever comes to mind at that particular moment. And I, I, you know, there's sometimes where I'll go through my whole system because I do these live streams during the week that I'll, uh, that go out on Facebook and on, um, on YouTube. And that's, that's more of a, you know, it's going through a system. But when I do the Instagram thing, it's, it's on the phone too. It's just on a phone or an iPad, you know, and uh, because that's what it should be. And it should be, as you said, you know, rando things. And if there's, if there's a little schmutza in there, well, that's, that's what was meant to happen. (laughs) Right. And, you know, I mean, you know, and, and believe me, you know, you've heard those great records. I mean, I'm not just talking about jazz. I'm, you know, I mean, I, I got, classical records where the cats are kind of messing up and then they miraculously pull it out of the toilet, you know what I mean? And, you know, or, or just the rock bands, you know, the great rock cream and Led Zeppelin, some of the so loose, but they, they're just almost like, seems like by force of nature and force of personality, they save it. You know what I mean? Like you, you can't even really define a musical element that did it. It's almost like just their yes. badass or badass. You know what I mean? It happened, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, I, you know, to me, you know, especially as I get older, that's the thing that I just love about music, you know, just being in the moment and, and doing it, you know, and, and then cool things that happen, you know, and hearing new things. I can dig it all. So it's, it's really been strange this pandemic, you know, I mean, like locking me in my house, you know, after, after a life of being on the road pretty much, you know, and doing things. Um, I learned a lot about myself and of course I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly driven to, to produce shit. I just can't help it. So like uh, the first thing that happened was, well, I moved into my house. I mean, I'd always lived here, but, and would live with my wife, but, it's like, you know, I was always like home and then gone, home and then gone. So I'm just getting home or I'm just about to leave, you know. Now it was like, I'm here and tomorrow I'm going to be here and next month I'm going to be here and I don't know if I'm ever going to leave again, you know. And I mean, which is why, as everybody called, you know, this time the pandemic, I, I believe for my <laughs> wife it was the pandemic. Because this, all of a sudden there's this guy living in the house right. 24-7. What the hell happened here, you know. And so I like, uh, you know, I, I had this gig Jones and, you know, and so I created a TV show at my house, which I called Grumps TV. And, and we did 50 episodes, you know, for an hour long and I'd write parody songs and I'd play and I even had friends like send me clips of them playing and I'd play along <laughs> with it. I put them on the iPad and I play along with it. And then I'm, I'm struggling, I did it on Facebook Live, so I'm struggling to keep it on air because they're always knocking me off, you know what I mean? Because Facebook right. doesn't want to be a TV station for somebody, you know what I mean? That's not what they're really thinking about. So they didn't make it easy for me, but I realized real quickly that that's what they were doing, so I, I filmed the shows, and then I would put them up on YouTube. You know, and, and of course, a big one of some of the funniest shit in there is me wrestling with the Internet and and like and cussing out Mark Zuckerberg, you know, because I can't get back on Facebook. And there's like 50 on my YouTube channel. There's like these great and it's like a mixture of uh, I don't know if you remember a show called Fernwood Tonight. No. OK, there was a show called Fernwood Tonight. It was it was a, a kind of a spoof on a public access TV show, you know, like before cable kind of, you know. Right. And it's by Martin Mull, this great comedian. Sure. Yeah. As guitar player, too. Um, he had this band of like Tommy Tedesco and Colin Bay, all these L.A. studio guys. And uh, and Jerry Willard, you know, that actor. 
he was the sidekick. That's one of his first gigs was he was the sidekick. Uh, he was like the Ed McMahon of that show, you know? And, uh, it was just this hilarious, like local, and they, and, you know, they'd interview people. It was just like totally fucked up, you know? And, but it was hilarious. And so my show is like a mixture of that and I Love Lucy because my wife was involved and she's a singer. So she would dress up in costumes and we'd do like comedy skits and I'd write parody songs about shit. And, and you know, so that was like the first pandemic, you know, thing I did until my wife quit. She quit at, at the 50th episode. She said, this is it. I'm done. You know, if Netflix ain't going <laughs> to give us no money. I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so, uh, but then I had started the first chorus of the day by then. So that's like been two years. I've been almost, you know, feels like, I mean, there's like 500 of them or something. And, you know, just, but the, the interesting thing about it for me was here, I was locked up and, and I didn't have gigs to practice for. I, you know, I mean, I do a lot of different gigs with a lot of different players and I'll do record dates and stuff. So a lot of my shedding time is often, you know, geared towards the project that's coming up oh yeah i got this record date with this guy yeah he sent me the charts sure i could go in and just read them on the record date but i want to know them, you know what i mean so i'll like do my homework in advance so i can just go play and um and lots of things like or like you know like the new thing is playing in seven or something you know the jazz guys like to make things harder and harder and harder i never understood that you know but anyways um I thought the goal of practicing was to make it easier, not hard. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, so I ended up practicing getting good at seven. You know, I was pretty good at five, but then that's like, you know, you only need to take one shoe off for that. You know, and now with seven, you need to take the second shoe off. Not that high. And um, <laughs> so uh, anyways, but when I got to the pandemic, I realized, wow, all I'm going to do is what I want to do. It was like this freedom to like, and I didn't even, sometimes I didn't even know what that was. So like, I mean, it would just, I'd just be playing all day and kind of realize this is what I like, you know, I'm real into this, you know, I'm going to go down that road, you know, and, or I've been listening to these crazy players who I really like. I, I like this one guy named Art Tatum. He's a piano player. Who's yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just ridiculous. It sounds like two piano players, two really good piano players. And, um, and I was like, well, how can I get that on the guitar? How can I get something that sounds like that? I mean, I didn't, I didn't transcribe it or copy it. So it's like, okay, I hear a lot of contrary motion and two voices going at the same time. How am I going to get that done? You know what I mean? Well, I just take the song and kind of play with it and see where it went, you know? So a lot of that pandemic stuff has really been, um, has really been great. And then I had kind of like a life-changing experience this last May. Which luckily it wasn't a health scare or anything, you know, but, um, you know, I, I played with Barney Kessel a whole lot, you know, like in my early days. And, and I, of course, loved his playing in many ways. He's like all of us guitar players really owe a huge debt of gratitude to him. Uh, he did it. He did records called the Pull Winners, which was when he was winning the, you know, the L.A., the West Coast Jazz heyday of the late 50s he would win the downbeat and the metronome and the playboy pole you know along with ray brown and shelly man who were also west coast guys and they made these records called the pole winners 
when they were guitar-based drums. And that's like the first really documented, established guitar-based drums ensemble ever. You know, guitar was always with piano or with vibes or with a rhythm guitar, you know, rhythm and lead. You know, it was never guitar is just like the orchestra kind of and the bass and drum supporting it. That was like, that hadn't really happened. And, and you know, like five years later, a guy named Jim Hall was did a record with Sonny Rollins, which was called The Bridge, which sort of legitimized the guitar-based drums as a modern jazz rhythm section, which, of course, liberated all us guitar players to kind of be like piano substitute kind of guys. And, you know, a year later, you've got Buddy Holly doing a guitar trio. Now, granted, he was singing, but still, it was just a guitar, bass, and drums doing. And he didn't have electric bass. He had upright bass. And, you know, thanks to Leo Fender, that made it a lot easier so they could play a lot louder. But, and then, you know, Hendrix was only, what, four years after that. And so, I mean, that's not a long time in history. You know, it's 10 years. And so and so Barney was really uh, an amazing guy. He, he was in the Wrecking Crew. You know, he played on the Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys thing. Did, did those Elvis dates that were in LA and stuff like that, you know? So he did a lot of different stuff. Anyways, I knew him. He picked me to go on the road with him. Like when they had like some tour with like an established guy and a young up and coming guy, he picked me and, and I got to know him anyways. Uh, he had a stroke in 92 and I'd visit him and he was rare in that he didn't play a lot of guitars his career. He kind of had one the whole time. You know, I mean, we guitar players, let's face it, we're kind of like Amel DeMarcos with shoes, you know? <laughs> and, so, and so he was kind of monogamous, you know, of sorts. And, um, and so I would, go, I would go visit him when he had a stroke and play his guitar. And then even after he died, I, I was real tight with his widow. So I would visit her and she would always bring the guitar out for me to play, you know? And I would play it. And I even had this idea. I said, boy, Phyllis, wouldn't it be great if I took this guitar and we've got Ray Brown's bass and we got Shelly Mann's drums and we just did it. We revisited the pole winners ideas, you know, but instead of copying their playing, we would just use their like kids playing their parents' instrument. And um, and she kind of liked the idea until she realized I would have to take the guitar and you know, get to know it and then maybe get it set up, which means take the strings that were like Barney's last set of strings. And of course that was an incredibly valuable historical piece. And, you know, you don't want to go messing with that. So plus I don't think she wanted it to leave her house really. So, um, ended up, she, she auctioned it off and it didn't go for as much money. I thought it was worth like half a million dollars in my head. It was just priceless, you know? It didn't really go for a whole lot of money. It went for a shit ton of money, but not like half a million like I had done. And I got to know the guy who had bought it at auction. He was a guy from Oklahoma, actually, who uh, knew who loved Charlie Christian. And it's really cool, the story there. The guy lived in Colorado now. And anyways, so I'm driving to this gig last May in Santa Cruz, which is just north of where I live. And I'm about halfway there. And I tell you, Greg, Barney Kessel was in the car. It's the weirdest thing. And I don't even believe this shit. You know, I don't, you know, when people tell me these stories, I'm the first guy to kind of my eyes glass over. Okay. Yeah. Right. This shit, you know, he was in the fucking car. I'm driving. And it was like, I couldn't lose him. He was just like, all I could think about was him and playing with him. 
you know, and hanging out with him. And I could even like smell his aftershave. He had this horrible cologne that he always, <laughs> and, uh, and I could smell that shit. You know, it was just like, and I got to the club and I realized, Oh, I played here with him like 40 years ago, 35 years ago. You know, that's why, but I'm in the club and he's still like walking around following me or something, you know, it was just really weird. So I um, emailed the guy who had the guitar and I said, man, you're not going to believe this. I'm just having this incredible flashback of Barney and, and, you know, I hope you're getting, uh, we played here in this club 35, 40 years ago. I hope you're getting along with the guitar. I said, if you ever want to let it go, please give me first crack at it. And then I went and played a set. And then came off and looked at my phone. He'd emailed me back and he said, I can't believe your timing. He said, you know, just this morning or a few hours ago, I was talking to my wife and I said, it's time for me to sell that thing. I, you know, I don't want to leave it for her to have to sell. She doesn't know what it is. The kids don't know what it is. It's a strange thing. You know, it's time to have it go somewhere else, you know, and all it ever did is sit in the case in his house anyway. And so, um, he, he said, uh, and I'd really like not a collector to have it. I'd like, you know, someone like you who had a connection to him or a museum to have it. He said, so if you give me what I paid for it, if you come back and get it, and if you give me a guitar lesson, you can have it. And so uh, a week and a half later, I was in the car driving to Colorado to pick up this guitar. Gave him his lesson. And with it, I got a box full of memorabilia, man, that's like, I got letters from Brian Wilson, letters from Phil Spector, letters from Oscar Peterson and Jim Hall. I mean, pictures of him playing at the White House. I got all this shit, you know. And so um, so as soon as that happened, I called John Clayton, who's this bass player who was like Ray Brown's protege, basically. This amazing bass player. And he has Ray's bass. And I, and I, and then I have a friend who has Shelly's drums up in Portland, but I called Jeff Hamilton, the drummer who Shelly basically got to take over his place in a band called the LA four, which was real big in the jazz world. And then Jeff ended up playing with Ray Brown's band and Oscar Peterson and all this stuff, Diana Carl. And, uh, so I got the guys together and you know, COVID kind of made it easier because no one was out on the road really. And so we uh, went in the studio just like they did with the poll winners. We just called. I mean, we just kind of talked about what tunes we wanted. We played through them. We made up the arrangement. We just played them. We recorded all in the same room with these old mics, you know, because we had pictures of the original sessions. So we knew what kind of recording equipment they used. And a friend of mine, a collector in New York, called me up. He says, I heard you got Barney's guitar. I said, yeah. He says, well, you need his amp, right? And I said, yeah, I don't know. His kids sold that years ago. I don't, I don't even know where it is. You know, I, 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 I. and he goes, I got it. Oh. <laughs> so he sent me like Air FedEx Air and I had it in two days. What kind of amp was it? It's, it's I'll show you. It is a, uh, I mean, this is the one from the early days. It's a Gibson BR3. It was the one right after the Charlie Christian amps. Look how, like, it looks like it's been in a flood. Is that cool here? That is unbelievable. Has that got the mic channel thing where you can distort? Yeah, it's got a mic and two instrument channels. Oh, it's, that, just I, got tone. it's just got tone. No, no bass or treble. 
Yeah. So I, I used the amp and we just, you know, we just played and had a, you know, it was like a live date. It's called, um, hold on. Actually, uh, take, email me your address. I'll send you a copy. Of course, I'll do that. Just oh, please. Another CD to clutter up your house. It's called Reunion. It's pretty cool. Oh, it was fun. That, that, you did, uh, Kind of the that Malaguena type of Green Dolphin Street on there, right? You heard that, yeah, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. But you know, Barney was like kind of a, a somewhat. He could be a really an asshole, a real irascible asshole, but he also could be really funny and love telling jokes. And I'm surprised he hadn't thought of that first. You know, that, that I came up with that idea on a, on a first course of the day. I just was like, you know, wow, Green Dolphins. So, yo, what if I put it in E? And then, then I kind of did a, flim, you know, like a, like a jive flamenco, jazz right. flamenco bullshit thing. So this is kind of funny, you know? Yeah, it's, it's like, cool. Because usually the song will go like, you know, the harmony is usually like E to G. You know what I mean? Which is pretty. But I decided to make it flamenco. Right, right. <laughs> now is that the guitar right there? That is right. The guitar. It's got like an old Barney. Okay, it's a it's a it's a ES three fifty from about nineteen forty six. But the pickup is from a Charlie Christian. Tra- Charlie Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to, I, I, there was a time where I was really into watching the Barney Kessel videos that I could see on YouTube. Uh, there's a particularly cool one with. Um, uh, Kenny Burrell and Grant Green, where they're kind of going back and right. forth. Oh, yeah. yeah, that one's great. Yeah, yeah, and um, and there's a really cool YouTube one. It's just called Barney Kessel talks about his guitar. I think I've seen that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a minute long, you know, but he really kind of goes in. I did this, and I did this, and I mean, so he's got these weird knobs, and he moved them to like where they're like really fit for where he wanted to grab them, and like the the bridge is kind of a little bit more um, sensibly built than the Gibson ones were. And, uh, and I was with him on the road in Australia when the headstock on this got broken. You know, the airlines busted the headstock. You know, they made him check it. And boom. You and know, even, so. even when you're Barney Kessel, they make you check it. Well, he was kind of pissed off at me because I got mine on. Uh, but my guitar was smaller. I had, I kind of had an, uh, those years I was using an, an Ibanez cut. They made me a Bruce Foreman model. And what I kind of did was I took an old L5 and gave it a haircut. I took like an inch off, a little off the sides, a little off the top. Right. You know, I redesigned the instrument so it would fit on in the overhead on an airplane. That was the whole point of making it smaller. Ah. <laughs> I'm a big guy. I don't need it smaller. It was just like, I'm fucking tired of the airlines. I want to make it smaller, you know? Right. And it, it worked for a while, and then the airlines just got to be bigger assholes, and then it didn't work anymore. <laughs> right, 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 right. But, uh, but yeah, this has been like my recent project of just something, you know, and I'm really digging the guitar. It's that pickup. I think, man, is so amazing. It sounds great. I mean, the you know, the recording. I mean, your your tone is so great. It's not you know, there was a, a time there where it was like you know, 
a, a lot of jazz players would have, you know, the, you know, the ES one seventy five ish type thing with the, you know, round wild strings going through a polytone. It was a real, you know, real dead sound. But your, yours is a very lively. You can really hear the wood of the guitar, and it's it's brighter, and that's what I like because that's. I mean, well, well, Barney had that tone too, for you know, and yeah, well, Barney did, and you know, I've always, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of gone against the, you know, I don't mind a dark tone, I just don't like a muddy tone. Right there, you go, exactly. And you know, I mean, it, you know, and there are some guys that manage to make a dark tone kind of not so muddy, you know, but for the most part, if you start, you know, especially me, you you hear me play a lot of chords and stuff. I need everybody to hear all the notes I play. Well, I mean, what's the point of playing them? You know, and um, and so yeah, I've I've always played with a, a little bit brighter sound than the people who play my style generally, and also I generally play with more energy, which probably relates back a lot to the uh, the Led Zeppelin, you know, the Who, and right. you know, and 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 the band, and just loving the the energy of rock and roll music i just do you know what i mean that i love i mean i love the music in any ways but that particular part of it just really just the raw expression of it is just so beautiful you know and i don't want to lose that just because i might be playing jazz or you know more changes or whatever i don't want to give up that just because i'm doing this other thing we interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle infested conversation to give a special shout out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. I'm wondering if you had... You know, because my experience, I, I, I thoroughly believe that there is, you know, and I don't want to get anybody in, in trouble because these are these are just my observations. It's probably could have been different for, you know, anybody and or everybody has their own experiences as far as it's concerned. But I, I find that, you know, I, in academia, more more of the guys that are, you know, in, in, in jazz education that maybe don't gig as much other than like, you know, playing casuals or wedding gigs or the occasional duo. They're not like, you know you know, really playing jazz gigs per se, but they're in education and they loathe rock and roll. And to them, rock and roll is everything from like, you know, ABBA to Yes to, to the, the Monkees to, you know, Led Zeppelin. It's just all the same. It's that rock shit. You know what I mean? Right, right, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, I'm, and I'm wondering if, you know, uh, was that just my... In, experience in in kind of this kind of you know more of the uh, you know midwest type of you know academic environment or is you know but but i also also felt the thing is that all the you know my buddy of mine had a line years ago he's like all the heavies are as light as feathers and pretty much everyone i've encountered who's really good is very very open and loves everything and is right. that is that kind of your your, your experience Yes, that that would. I think your final statement there is really the key, right there. I mean, a lot of guys kind of need to justify their own place in the world by hating everything else or putting it down. And um, yeah, I mean, and if you if you wanted, if I want to judge, you know, a chocolate sundae by you know the 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 evaluation process of how I judge a whiskey or a wine, well, that sundae is going to be shit. 
You know what I mean? Because it's a Sunday. It's not wine. It's not whiskey. So it's like these guys, they kind of like say, well, they don't do this and they don't do that. Therefore, it's shit. But it's like, you know, I was even on a gig with somebody the other day and he was kind of like saying jazz is sophisticated and rock isn't. And that's just fucking bullshit. I'm sorry. I mean, I just I could sit down and play him stuff we would call rock that's so fucking sophisticated, you know, it would blow his mind. And it it's like a hell of a lot deeper than two five one, you know, which is what this guy was kind of doing all day. You know, so it's like that's bullshit, man. You know, music, I mean and it doesn't need to have it. It music doesn't need to have sophistication to be great anyway. Right, true. Yep. Um, so it's like, there are so many levels to all this, you know, I mean, it's just, but if you have a tendency to need to, to sort of justify your place in the world by making everything else worse, those are those kind of people. And uh, they, they do gravitate towards academia, I hate to say, because they can't get a gig anywhere else. A lot of guys, you know, the guys who can really play that are in there, they're wide open to everything. You know, I'm at a school with Peter Erskine. You know, I mean, he's playing with Steely Dan one day. He's playing with, you know, like Weather Report. You know, he, you know, he's like playing in a jazz trio. He's doing everything. He's playing with the L.A. Philharmonic. You know, he's like Russell Ferrante with the uh, Yellow Jackets. The yeah. Yellow Jackets. But that guy is such a great straight ahead player, too. You know what I mean? And Alfonso Johnson's there. I mean, we've got all these amazing players. And, and Bob Minson, none of them are like, that shit, this shit, you know, it's like, it's so, but I think in general, the people who kind of don't have a lot of experience in the world have a tendency to try and validate their own thing by kind of making it the best thing, which is a losing battle. It is indeed. I mean, God, every, you know, every day I think I can play the guitar. All I got to do is, you know, go to a gig somewhere else or, or turn on YouTube and I'm completely, humbled out of that (laughs) (laughs) it never ends yeah the quest yeah really you know and you know and the appreciation of it it's just great you know how did he think of that wow why didn't i get that one you know it's like you know i wanted to ask you about the uh how did you get hooked up with the the clint eastwood thing and doing the the movies uh movie stuff a million dollar baby and that kind of stuff that was probably, I mean, I knew, I've known Clint for a long time. Um, he's a jazz lover. He's been involved with the Monterey Jazz Festival. So, I mean, my first performance there, I think, was I was 23. And I've been, and I always played like every year. And then I joined the all-star band there and played there every year for like 12, 15 years in one period. So, I mean, I was always in contact with him. And, uh, and then, um, uh, let me think. I'd just gotten back from Europe play, and I got called to play Louis Belson's 80th birthday party. And, and Clint, Clint has a place down here called the mission ranch. It's a really old she- It's an old sheep ranch right on like Carmel river beach. And, uh, he's converted into a restaurant bar and hotel. It's a, a really a great place. And, um, and he has a little barn, the barn area he, he has events in. And Louis Bellsman's had his 80th birthday party. And I played in the band. And Clint was there. And he sort of looked at me and he kind of went, guitar. It was like, I thought, God, this guy's kind of losing it or something. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, 
the next day, you know, so like I'm kind of jet lagged because I'd just flown in from like Switzerland or something to do that gig. And I, I'd forgotten I had it. And they called me like I'd just gotten home and I'm like, you know, half blind. And, you know, it's like, and the sound checks in 20 minutes. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so, um, anyway, so the next morning, my wife is trying to let me, uh, sleep off my jet lag, you know what I mean? And, uh, and she, I can hear her like, arguing with this guy on the phone no he's he'll call you back he'll call you he can't talk to you now he can't no i said he'll call you back okay what's your name i know this shit so she comes in i said what was that and he says some guy really has to talk to you but fuck him just sleep and you know call him when you need to so you know i pretty much in it ruined my vibe so i got up looked at the thing and the message had the name of cornelius wood and so I called this guy up and I say, hello, Cornelius. And he goes, who? And I said, Cornelius. And he says, who? I said, Cornelius Wood. He goes, who is this? I said, it's Bruce Foreman. He goes, Bruce, this is Clint Eastwood. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't even know she was like talking to Clint Eastwood. Dude. <laughs> That's and fantastic. I'm sure, was, I'm sure he was very impressed because, you know, he was, he's used to using his name and everybody's like, you know. Right gets out of the way but um so i went Cornelius in Wood. and i went and i went in and oh and and uh I'm, I'm driving to the studio you know and i live out here in carmel valley it's like 10 20 minutes out in towards the country you know i've got like two acres it's really nice out here but so i'm, I'm headed into carmel and um I realized, shit, all I've got is my, you know, jazz guitar. Like, what if this is a movie about a bullfighter or something? You know what I mean? I don't know what this movie's about. I'm, you know, I, so I uh, had this friend in town and she wasn't home, but I knew she had really great gu acoustic guitars, you know, like, and so uh, I broke into her house and uh, took a, uh, a, a really great classical guitar and a really great, not a uh, steel string, you know, and I went to the uh, session and he said, Hey man, you know, this movie's about a female boxer. It's kind of like, I'm looking for a Missouri back porch searching sound. I said, okay. And so obviously that's a flat top guitar, you know, steel string guitar. So I got that. And then he's like, then he played the theme. He'd written the theme. It's kind of a simple little theme. And I kind of like played it back at him just to make sure I had, he was playing on the piano. And so I played it back on the piano and I said, do you want it sounding major? Cause all I did was the melody. I said, do you want it major or minor? You know, and I kind of, it was in C, so I played C major and let him hear the melody, and then I played an A minor and let him hear it, you know. He said, oh, the major is it, you know. I said, cool. And so I sat down and just basically improvised for 45 minutes on that theme. Just like slow, fast, you know, low register, high register, with harmony, without harmony, with counterpoint, you know, like bring it into different grooves and play around with it, you know, put new changes to it, you know, just sort of, you know, variations on a thing, on a theme. And uh, it ended up being like half the music for that movie. And so after that, he just kept calling me until, and they, and it was like, like one or one week or two weeks before the movie came out. It's like the very last thing in the world they do is like get the music. I guess while they're mixing and while they're making a movie and editing it, they've got source music that they're not going to really use. And then when it gets, when they got the movie, that's when they, have the score done and so uh because like i went to the cast and crew screening within two weeks of being in that studio 
So um, I did the next few, and then um, he called me, and I'm like, yeah, well, I'm up in, I was up in this jazz festival in Port Townsend, which is like on the Puget Sound in, up in Washington. And I, and I said, uh, man, I, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm up here, you know, and I got gigs for the weekend. I said, you know, he's a big jazz fan. I, I said, he says, oh, damn. I says, well, why don't you, you got a plane, right? And he said, yeah. I said, why don't you come up, you know, enjoy the jazz festival, find a studio, we'll do it. It, won't, you know, it only takes us a, an hour, you know, to do it. He says, yeah, it's a great idea. Of course, he didn't do it. He just got somebody else. And that was, uh, he never called me back again. And then, uh, and that was Gran Torino. I, I would have been on that. And, and actually, he called me in to do something for Cry Macho, but it just didn't work out. It was like, it was too, there was a music guy there. I mean, usually it's just Clinton. He's doing everything. But now he's like 91. He's got a, a music director dude. And I guess the music director dude, he called me up to come in and I came in, but it was like, the guys, no, we've got everything. We can't, we, we gotta, you know, we, it's gotta come out you know, we gotta do, we gotta use what we got, you know? So it was kind of a false alarm, but, um, yeah, that's, he works very differently. I mean, I really wish he would one day like send me the movie and say, write me a score, you know, where I could really like write the melodies and write the themes and orchestrate it and do all that stuff. I would love that opportunity. You know, like which is way most movies do work, um, but Clint doesn't work that way. You know, and and I do appreciate the jazzness of the way he works, though. What did you think of his uh, Charlie Parker movie? That, you know, that's funny. That's that's probably why I didn't talk to him for fifteen years. I didn't like it. It's it's interesting because when I was twenty two, uh, I was working with a guy named Richie Cole, and we went over to Paris to play like right around Christmas time. And it was like the most magical, I mean, imagine like being a young guy going on the road. Like here I was 22, I go to Paris, France. He had a friend who, who had a, like a, who did ran a riverboat cruises down the Seine river. So, but of course it was cold. So they weren't, they were just like parked. So we stayed on this unbelievable riverboat right there below the Grand Palais. And um, on top of it, because Richie was like mentored by Phil Woods, who was this great saxophone player. Um, and, and Phil Woods had married Charlie Parker's widow, Chan. So Chan, Chan came down and stayed on the boat. So here I am playing a gig in this club in Paris with Richie, with this great French rhythm section, and living on a boat with Chan Parker. <laughs> you know, so like every night we're just like drinking wine and she's telling me stories about Bird. And of course, you're hearing stories from a woman who, you know, had the guy, he wasn't the most responsible human on earth. You know I mean? He was far from it. You know, he was of course a brilliant horn player and a really amazing force of personality. But he, I would imagine being in a relationship with him would have been very problematic considering all the various problems there were. And she was very much pissed off about that. <laughs> right. And, um, and so like, I kind of heard you know, on the one hand, she's like talking about what a fuck up he was and like all the shit that fuck, you know, how he made her life miserable. But on the other hand, she's like building him up, you know, you don't really need to build him up. I mean, she's just like putting him on the pedestal of great musicianship at the same time. It's like in order to, I don't know, just to, or maybe it's what makes her the queen, you know, I mean, 
it's an asshole king, but uh, if he stays the king, I'm the queen. Kind of. right. I don't. It was a very interesting dynamic. I loved her very much, but I knew what I was listening to was not the real truth. I mean, I you know I would much rather have heard Dizzy Gillespie or Roy Haynes or Bud Powell, you know, uh, Thelonious Monk. So, um, anyways, fast forward to Clint's movie, and I'm watching this movie. And I felt like I was sitting on that couch listening to Chan talk about her, which ah. she had actually been the main, she was the main advisor for that movie. And so, and the musician, jazz musicians, we didn't, a lot of us didn't, the ones of us who were kind of diehard beboppers, we didn't like that movie because it was more like all about his drug addiction and his problems and less about the music. And then we also didn't like that they kind of like, put a modern sounding rhythm section underneath it. So it didn't even sound like the same genre of music, even though the guys were fucking amazing players. Don't get me wrong. These guys are, you know, every bit as good as the guys that originally played with them, except for the sound quality and, you know, just the vibe of the music. It was just different. You know, it was in LA and they had a, they had a mic on every drum and that music just does not sound right that way. It's a different kind of thing, you know? And so, um, I was with Clint, oh, this is about 10, 15 years before Million Dollar Baby, at a, at a concert he was promoted for producing for the jazz festival. And um, he was just talking to me, you know, and he heard me playing some bebop. And he says, yeah, man, you know, I, did you see that movie Bird? And I said, yeah. And I guess he could tell I wasn't like, yeah. <laughs> it was right. great. <laughs> and, you know? and, um, and he just said, you know, it really surprised me. I said, why? He says, you know, a lot of jazz musicians didn't seem to really like it. And I said to him, I said, Clint, well, I hope if they make a movie about us, they don't get our ex-wives to do it. <laughs> and uh, he didn't talk to me for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> little foot and mouth disease. So what, what, well, how did he initially react when you said it? Was he kind of like, oh, He's yeah. kind of like, you know, I mean, I don't think too many people tell him the truth. Sure. He's got sick of it. I mean, you're that powerful and, you know, everybody wants something from you. They, you know, they're a little more careful about the way they express themselves. And like, I had nothing to gain from him. So I just told him the truth, you know, and it's like, and I mean, I, I could see it was almost like I hit him, you know what I mean? I mean, he's used to bad critique. I'm sure he's used to critics nailing him. You know what I mean? But but from his inner circle, he's not used to it. You know. And uh, I mean, and that that's just me. I could be completely wrong there. I don't know what he does. Or uh, I mean, right, I don't, sure, I, I, I understand. Mean, we, we don't go out like and have lunch and you know, right? Shoot the shit. You know, there's a guy who's had an amazing career. You know, and uh, made a lot of great movies. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm super jealous at how, you know, if he just wants to do something, he can do it. You know, he's got that kind of power in the world. You know, imagine you say, oh, I'd like to get these guys together and make a record of this or, or do this kind of a project, you know, and like just just the thought of it. Everybody wants to get on board right now. You know, I mean, that kind of power. I mean, when, shit, when I want to do shit, I've got to do all of it myself. Like I'm. Like, for instance, most people start their career in the mailroom and work their way up, right? Well, it appears that I'm ending mine in the mailroom because right now all I'm doing is sending out 
fucking CD <laughs> <laughs> to the people who like did the Kickstarter thing, you know? So, oh yeah. I so I'm in the fucking mail room, you know, Clint Eastwood ain't in the mail room. Man. Well, how much, how much on the road were, were like when you were on the road, you know, pre COVID, how many, how many days out of the year do you are, are like average? Do you reckon? Uh, probably about 125. I mean, and that's lately, you know, it was much more before, but, since I've been teaching at USC in LA, it made me a little pickier and choosier about the projects I'm doing. So it's it's probably somewhere between 100 and 150 is where I was at that time. And I really had a cool project going that I was really excited about. And uh, I had a lot of fun, but, you know, I can always revive it or move on to the next, you know. And as you know, and I want to thank you before I'm remiss, you know, I imagine everybody will have tuned us out by now, but um, <laughs> <laughs> this has been great. On, on my podcast, Guitar Wank, which um, has been going now for five years, was started with Scott Henderson, myself, and Troy McCubbin. And Scott has kind of moved on to other things, exalted guest status. But I want to thank you for being on that show. Like, let all your listeners know that. We got like hundreds of episodes over at guitarwank.com with lots of different guests. And um, it's pretty much the same. You know, we, maybe we should combine, you know, because it's the same sort of vibe as you noticed, I'm sure. You know, we could take over the world, Craig. You know what I mean? I'm all for it. Yeah, so man. What, so what are you thinking as far as, you know, obviously things are still weird. You know, I had a tour in Europe that I was supposed to go on. Next week, I was supposed to be gone, uh, but I canceled it back in uh, late August or early September. Uh, it's over in, you know, in Europe and the UK. And I was like, you know, with if there's any possibility of any kind of chicanery, I'm like, I don't need to do it. I, I'm not going to do it. So uh, I really don't have anything booked around. I mean, I got a couple things booked locally, but I have my live streams and that's all going great. And um, you know, I'm looking at booking some stuff, some stuff's coming in for next year, but what's your kind of approach as far as how you're looking at getting back on the road and, and doing stuff again? You know, very much like yours. I mean, I haven't been on a plane since February of 2020, you know, or March of 2020. And, uh, I mean, no hurry to get on one. You know, I never really liked them to begin with, although I do love touring and I do love playing music out in the world. Um, I'm rethinking it. I haven't really been trying to get, I mean, if I were a baseball player, all I've been doing is fielding shit that comes to me, I'll catch it. But you know, I'm not hitting and I'm not pitching, you know, which, which means I'm not really getting much. I mean, around here locally, I'm playing in bars and stuff. I'm like a human karaoke machine, you know, like, um, a singer, if you, all you got to do is tell me what song and what key and what tempo and I'll set you up or, or a horn player or whatever. I'll set you up and you can do the melody or whatever and you can do your little solo and then I'll do mine and then you can do the thing out and I'll give you an ending and put another dollar in and you get another song, you know. So I um, basically, you know, I've been working a lot. I mean, just just local clubs, you know, and I go down to L.A. from here quite a bit, you know, with the record date and stuff. And But I, I'm excited to get out there and do it again. I've got you know, I don't, I don't see this as the end of everything for me, but I just kind of want it all to, 
I mean, I want to see the end of this through this, this, this whole pandemic thing, you know, and see how everything's going to go. I really don't need to expose myself to any more, you know, risk than I already do. Right. And, um, and I have, like I say, you know, like I, I never knew what it was like to live in my house. So I always thought it was for squares, you know? <laughs> I get it. And now I'm really, it's pretty cool, you know? <laughs> yeah, kind of the same thing. You know, I, you know, my schedule was not dissimilar from yours, probably. I've gone about 125, 150 days out of the year for the last God knows how long, uh, last couple decades, right? And, um, and all of a sudden I'm at home and I'm not going anywhere. I mean, I did, I have been on a plane a few times since. You know, maybe I've been on six flights and it, you're not missing anything. It's, it's the same old shit. If a matter of fact, you know, my first flight was canceled. Every flight has either been canceled or delayed. Every one of them. So, you know, you get into an airport and you're like, you know, I don't miss this shit. You know, I enjoy getting to where I need to go and doing the work, you know, and hanging and playing and doing whatnot. But the, the travel part of it was, no. Nah. Anyway, so being at home, you know, then I had all four of my kids at home because they, you know, all their schools were canceled. You know, my son was is a musician and he was going to be up in Minneapolis. He had a bunch of house gigs all lined up in addition to the stuff we do together. That all got canceled, obviously, because of the cove. So he was home and my sister was, or my sister, his sister was out in, in, um, in Vermont, and her her gig ended because of COVID, so she came back here. Then I had a, another one that was in college that couldn't go anymore, so she was here. And then my youngest is still in high school, so I had all four kids. My wife was working from home, and we were all here, but it was awesome. And it was just it was one of those things where it's like you know uh, you kind of always think, well, how how am I going to get along with everybody if I don't have to travel? Because you know you we get away with you know escaping to be really selfish in our rooms, practicing and doing what we want and watching what we want and eating what we want. <laughs> and all of a sudden you're at home and you're, but you know, I have to say it's, it's been one of those things where, yeah, this, this is, this is actually preferable. <laughs> what I'm thinking of doing, I mean, you know, I've always been kind of a guy who wants to, you know, like, like for a guy my age, in the field I'm in, you know, to embrace the internet the way I did when COVID happened. You know, I always hated it. To me, to me, the internet was about like to what you use online is basically just to promote everything offline. That was that was what the internet was as of last Mar March a year ago. You know, March 2020. And then as soon as the shit ended, boy, you know, I jumped on. I got a TV show. I got I you know I'm a I started up an Instagram account. You know I you know I like I jumped in. You know and and I look back at, at the things I've done. Like I did this thing. I had, I started this band called Cowbop, and and it's like a Western swing. It's like Charlie Parker meets Bob Wills. You know what I mean? With a with a lot of like comedy in it too. It's I, I a like lot of the, the two hick for the room. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> so that's so like you know we're kind of like there's a lot of blazing saddles in there. You know what I mean? And so, um, we did a thing called the Route 66 Challenge where we left Chicago with $100 and a full tank of gas and tried to play the whole way to the Santa Monica Pier on, on Route 66. You know, just stopping in bars and playing and begging for food, passing the hat, you know, getting enough money for a hotel if we could, or staying with people who, who dug us. You know, hey, you, you know, like minstrels in the old days, you know, like the 30s, you know. And we did it. And like, 
I, I, I even, I believe, invented the blog because this was before the word blog had ever happened. And I would write a journal for the day of whatever happened. And I would, through a fucking dial-up modem, you know, send it to my webmaster. And he would post it on the website in the morning. And, like, newspapers started printing it. You know, like, where are they now kind of shit. You know, did they that make is, That is awesome. And, um... And it really was cool. I've done, of course, we did it five times. By the end, it wasn't a challenge anymore. Everybody knew us. It was just, oh, you're back. You want the same rooms kind of shit? You know, it's like, so, um, because we, the first time we couldn't set up anything because we didn't know if we'd make it. Like, we didn't know how far we'd get, you know? So it's like, you know, we didn't know if you had money for gas, you know? Well, that's not going to get you that far, you know? And so um, I've done things like that. uh, and, And I think, like when I went to get this guitar, okay, I got in the car because, you know, I didn't want to deal with the airlines and this is this guitar has already been busted by them once. Didn't want to give them a second chance. Um, and, you know, but it, it was right during a time where COVID was sort of dipping, like around Memorial Day this past year. And uh, I booked like three or four gigs. You know, I just called some people because we had to go near Denver. Oh, you called a friend in Denver. Oh, yeah, you can have it. Yeah, we'll do a thing, you know, play for the door. But, you know, people were hungry to come out. I packed the place, place in Fort Collins, drove through Salt Lake City, got a gig there. You know what I mean? So it's like, what if instead of flying to Chicago to play there, what if I get in the car? You know, that means I can do like Salt Lake and Denver and, and, you know, I mean, in Reno, Nevada, and, you know, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and Davenport, Iowa, and Clinton, Iowa. You know what I mean? I'm, like, thinking of all these. And if once I get to Chicago, I can just drive up to Milwaukee and Racine, and I can, you know, and I, like, and on the way back, maybe I'll come south and go to, like, Kansas City and St. Louis and Tulsa and Oklahoma City and, you know, and Phoenix and Albuquerque. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I can get gigs these places, you know, and if it's just me, doing my thing and maybe playing with local cats or maybe just doing a solo thing. Like it's like, if I don't make much money, Oh, well, you know, I'm not like having to pay guys to be on the road. So I'm thinking about, you know, that means no airplanes means I can take all the shit I want, you know? And, and of course the, you know, now the margins are so much different that I just don't need that much money anymore. And, um, and I had been doing this show, when what COVID kicked my balls about was um, I've been doing this show called the red guitar. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. 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 And um, I don't know if you're, I, I can send you a, a full version of it if you want to see it, um, you know, and it's a story. I mean, cause like I write novels and I'm a comedian kind of, you know, I, I've done stand up. I like to do stand up, and uh, I'm a storyteller. So um I wanted to create a, a piece that sort of explained to the world what we're like, how like a thing like a guitar or music can just take over your life. Like to the rest of the world, I mean, to all of us listening to this podcast, I'm sure we're, we're part of the club. We know. But the rest of the people who kind of go out and dig music, they have no idea. And I'm sure they're very interested. What makes us tick? Why, why, did, we, why did the music pick us? I mean, I'm even, I don't even know why, you know, I just, and so I wrote a libretto that's basically just kind of goes down that road, like the red shoes or the red violin, you know, how the music just sort of takes over your life. And, you know, it's like the Roach Motel, you check in, but you don't check out. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, 
And so and this was a thing where I kind of talk and play and tell this story. And it was like a really cool one-man theater. And I was doing New York off-Broadway and stuff. You know, it was really going good. And then, bye-bye. <laughs> that one's over. And, you know, obviously, and, and in many ways, getting Barney's guitar is sort of the next chapter of that story. I mean, here's this guitar that, you know, you could say something like, can a guitar actually possess somebody's soul? Can it hold your soul in it? And, you know, you probably say probably not, but the fact is, is, you know, the guitar can tell stories. Uh, the guitar can uh, bring, you know, bind generations. The guitar can uh, bring people together. Like just since having this guitar, so many people have come into my orbit that, that wouldn't be, you know. And so, and that's a lot of what the red guitar was about. So maybe just, take this guitar and do an improvised whatever it is, you know, just kind of a minstrel thing, you know, and if I got a rhythm section, great, let's play. And if I don't, okay, I'm going to play anyways, you know? Yeah, 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 I love it. And so, I mean, but the car, what the fuck? You know, no airlines. Don't feed the airlines, man, you know? There's little towns everywhere, and I, well, I don't need like 20, 30 people, and, and I said, good hang. I understand, yep. I, get I mean, it. That, that kind of, you know, I, I watch guys... I, I was hanging with this friend who uh, engineered all of uh, almost all of Alan Holdsworth's recordings. He was really close to him. And he was talking about how Alan, it was really hard on Alan when, you know, his, when, towards the end, when, you know, like he wasn't really able to make the money he had made and he wasn't playing in big places anymore. You know, it, his star had kind of, you know, the fusion music and, and just his own personal problems had kind of brought him down from like the, the 5,000 range to the 500 range and how it just really kind of hurt him. You know, it was hard for him. And, uh, I just think that, you know, that's, that's a natural thing of getting older. You know what I mean? People want the young guys, the young guys have the energy, they, they develop their new people and the older guys, we just, you know, we're still valuable, but you know, it's just like, it's going to be a little bit less of a hubbub. Of a hoopla. Yeah. You know, but so what? I mean, playing, you know, it's it's not really about the money or how many people are there. It's about playing. You know, I mean, I, I you know, if I had my druthers, I'd rather have money and people. But <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, as I like to always say, you know, you don't need a million. You just need enough. And yeah. enough, as you said, I mean, if you get, you know. You get a, a, a few people in a place that are willing to pay some dough and, you know, and then buy some merch and so on and so forth. You don't need that many. And then if you don't have to worry about the infrastructure of having a machine behind you and it can be relatively, you know, tetherless, then all the better. <laughs> right. Well, as- the other problem is, it's like, you know, and I, you know, I, I've talked to my friends who are kind of up in that strata, you know, um, and when I tell them some of the crazy shit I do, like the Route 66. That's that's a great thing. You know, it's I mean, I, awesome. I was you know, with a, there's this great trumpet player named Terrence Blanchard, and I was working with him, and I told him what I was about to do. And he like said, boy, I wish I could do that. And I said, well, come on, come with us, <laughs> you know. And he was like, no, man, I got like 30 people who, whose living depends on me making right. a lot of money. You know what I mean? I mean, and imagine what like someone like George Benson has. I mean, he has sixty people on the payroll. He can't go out and fuck around for a couple of weeks. No, absolutely not. He's got to keep that that train on the tracks, or it's not just him. 
He's got enough money probably. But all these people's livelihoods depend on him now. That's pressure, man. And, and so many of us who want to be in that place don't realize that. Exactly. Oh, no, I get it. I've, and I've thought about this many times. It's like, you know, I got a buddy of mine who plays in a band and, and um, you know, and he's like, you know, I play in this band and I enjoy it and the money is good, but I, I don't really want to do it anymore. But they told me that if I don't do it, they're going to stop. And if they do, then just as you said, there's this whole you know, support system that they have employed and they'll all be out of work. And just for the idea of the fact that he feels the pressure that he needs to go out and do it or else this all ends. And, you know, there's times where I'm like, I'm mighty grateful. There's like, there's like three people I got to worry about. (laughs) And maybe we're just rationalizing our place in life, Greg. Well, there's that. (laughs) <laughs> There's that too. Well, you know, I look at it this way. It's like I, I you know, I, I enjoy everything I get to do. You know what I mean? And 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 I've I've you know, I'm sure you, you know, you've done all of this great stuff where anyone would, would deem as success by any stretch of the imagination. But by the same token, we just like playing. So whether that means I can, you know, if I can just play and and make enough to exist and create the music I want to play without having to do things I really don't want to do, well, that to me is success. I mean, if you have to play, you know, a variety of different things and always be chasing a, a, a certain thing to maintain this machine, uh, that, that to me does not sound, I mean, again, it could be rationalizing, but it does sound like way too more, way too much pressure. Maybe when I was younger, that would have made sense. But at this particular, you know, I was like to say, I have so few fucks left to give. You know, Hey, it, it is what it is. I enjoy everything I get to do, but it's really about the playing. I mean, you know, I just well, like, maybe you know, we need to do a grumps and gristle road tour. I'd love it, man. That would be a blast. Yeah, Anytime. That, would, that would be a lot of fun, man. Oh, I'd be, it'd be an honor. I'd get some, uh, get some guitar lessons from you. Uh, same here, <laughs> man. Same here. <laughs> well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for spending some time with me today. And uh, let's stay in touch. And by all means, I'd love to do anything and anything musically. Yeah. And, and uh, well, well, be yeah, let's keep talking about it. And, uh, I'll send you. I'll send you. Uh, I'll send you some care packages. You know what I mean. That would Stuff be awesome. I don't mind. I don't mind the laughing. It's the pointing that bothers me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, thanks again. This will probably air. I would imagine. I'm probably in about three weeks. I think they come out on Thursdays. So I'll All let right, you know. Well, I'll let you know when it hits the the pod the podosphere, whatever and, that. And your guitar wink will come out this Thursday. So awesome. By the time people hear this. Yours will already be out, but they can still go back and get it because there are podcasts and they're up there. And they'll exist wherever pods are cast, as I like to say. (laughs) All right, my friend. Thanks again. Let's talk soon. All right. Thank you, Greg. Have a good one, Bruce. Thank you so much. All right, man. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her.